So, uh, on the 3rd of June, we will be celebrating Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, which is Greek for 50th, 50th day. And so, today is the second uh, message that focuses on the march to Shavuot. And if you were here last Shabbat, you'll know that Rabbi David spoke about the counting of the Omer. Um, Omer, by the way, is simply barley, which was the first crop that came, uh, came up uh, during the week of uh, Passover. And uh, so Israel, by the way, had two first fruits. The first first fruits and then the second first fruit. Hope that doesn't confuse you royally. Uh, what that simply means is that uh, the first crop, as I mentioned, was barley. And then uh, on Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which is typically the last part of May, early June, uh, you had wheat and then a number of, of the, the rest of the so-called seven species that are mentioned in Deuteronomy as the crops that grew up, uh, uh, came forth during the um, agriculture year in Israel. And uh, so last Shabbat, we looked at uh, counting of the Omer, uh, which in traditional Judaism has taken on all kinds of ramifications like typically is the case with commandments that are given in, in the Torah that are very pithy, very brief, and then the rabbis piled skyscrapers on top of those, um, simply to uh, bring what they consider clarity. But for us, um, counting of the Omer has to do more with the notion of learning to walk in patient faith. That's a very basic and essential discipline, spiritual discipline, that the Word of God calls on us to have, regardless of what stage we are spiritually. And so counting of the Omer, which is the time of expectation that will bring us to the fullness of the harvest, which is celebrated as Shavuot, um, is a reminder of the fact that where we are currently is a prelude to the rest of what God wants to do. And so, um, and Shavuot, by the way, for us, is also a reminder of what's going to take place in the future. Uh, so last Shavuot, last Shabbat, uh, was the counting of the Omer. Today, we'll focus on the giving of the Torah. And according to rabbinic tradition, uh, the Torah was given on Mount Sinai on Shavuot. Uh, we don't know that for absolutely sure, but the rabbis are probably correct. Uh, they've done some of the math. Um, and so for us, the focus then um, as we prepare for Shavuot is how do you prepare uh, for the giving of the Torah? And traditional Judaism has a custom called Tikkun Lel Shavuot, uh, which literally means the repairing of the evening of Shavuot. Uh, according to tradition, um, and this is re really legend, it's not a fact, um, 
the rabbis feel like the Jewish people were not fully prepared for the giving of the Torah, uh, even though they said, everything that you tell us we will do. Um, so there's sort of a desire to make up for that, and that's what the Kun Leil Shavuot is. Um, the evening before Shavuot, uh, people in the traditional Jewish community stay up and study all night. Um, so for us, that has not been the case. Um, what we do is uh, we meet on Wednesday night, and that would be a couple weeks, um, to study the book of Ruth, which is one of the passages of scripture that is read during Shavuot. And um, because for us, um, the notion of Tikkun Lel Shavuot is, is very significant. Um, and we'll talk more about that um, in just a bit. But the short version is we often read the word of God and we're not prepared. You know, we have zillions of things in our mind or we're in a big fat hurry or we're thinking of something else and we sit down and we really are not tuned to God's frequency. And part of the process for us as we read and study the Word of God is that we need to be prepared. And so Tikkun Lel Shavuot is a good reminder for us about that. And the third aspect of Shavuot um, of course, from a New Covenant perspective, is the giving of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out. Uh, initially, it was primarily a Jewish audience, as you see in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2. Um, the Spirit of God impacted the Jewish pilgrims with a scattering of some Gentile converts. But, of course, the Spirit of God came um, and, and was... Uh, the impact was broadened beginning with the Spirit of God coming on the house of Cornelius and from that point on everywhere. So this is something we will celebrate as well um, at uh, Shavuot um, as part of being a mishpacha of Jewish and Gentile believers um, simply because without the presence and the empowering of the Spirit of God, you and I can accomplish zip. Right? That's what Yeshua said. Without me, you can accomplish uh, 15%. Zero. Um, so it's important for us to step back and recognize the place of the Spirit of God in our life simply because, you know, so many times we are um, I hate to say it, we're like practical atheists. We believe in God, and yes, he's part of our life, but reality is that if the Lord were to disappear, we would continue to do life basically the same. We would follow according to what we understand, what we know, and what we are able. And so the Word of God calls on us to take a radical position that basically says, I have nothing to give to God. And yes, I've been made in the image of God, and yes, I have brains, and yes, I have a heart, etc., etc. However, every part of me has been sautéed and impacted to one degree or another by sin, and so I need to come to God and say, Lord, I have nothing. 
um, no shame in that. It's not self-deprecation. It's not putting yourself down and saying, I'm totally worthless. It's just simply recognizing reality that you and I need God. That without the presence and the activity as the Spirit of God in our life, we do not, we're incapable of carrying out what it is that God has called us to do. So, uh, Psalm 19 is a very uh, familiar one for us, uh, besides the fact we read it twice today. Um, and we have to step back somewhat. Uh, because when we think of David, presumably the writer here, uh, we think of someone who was basically a passion fruit. You know, this is the guy who danced to such an extent before the Lord that a bunch of his clothes came off and his wife looked and was highly embarrassed. Um, he is also the guy who wrote a huge percentage of the Psalms. So we think that David was someone who operated on heart and emotion, which he was. However, um, we don't see in Scripture that there is a need to m make a separation between what we give to God that is emotionally, what we give to God that is cognitively or with our mind and with our will. Uh, what we see here is someone who is deeply committed uh, to, to the Torah, to the Word of God, which, frankly, we sometimes uh, are repulsed by. You know, if we were to go around and ask for people's opinion, what we think about the laws of purification, um, I don't think we would, uh, most of us would say, yes, I love those laws of purification in Leviticus. Um, again, remember that the Word of God is given to us for a purpose, all of it. But it begins, first of all, by uh, uh, pointing to the Word of God as it's spread out in the heavens. Um, and it's kind of peculiar for us because we don't think of uh, the stars and, and the sky and, and the mountains of having anything to say to us. You know, it's not as if we go to the mountains and have a conversation with one of the 14ers, you know. Hi, how are you doing today, O mountain? Um, but in Scripture, we find that God's creation is called upon um, to be part of God's court, particularly when Israel is um, way out of line. And a couple of places, one in Deuteronomy 32 and then one in Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the Lord basically says to the mountains, Listen, O mountains, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I've reared children and brought them up, but they've re rebelled against me. In other words, it's, it's as if there is a court and God has dragged his rebellious kids into court and he's inviting creation as, uh, as witnesses for what he has to say um, as the, uh, the one who brings charges against, against the people. So it's kind of hard for us to get our arms around it, but you wonder why Scripture speaks to the mountains 
And I was wondering about that. What, what came to mind is that there are times that humanity just doesn't get it. You know, God sends his messengers over and over and over and over and over again. And we look at the messenger, the human messengers that God uh, sends to us, and we're totally clueless. You know, it's as if our eyes get glazed and there's absolutely no connection. So sometimes the Lord uses creation and particularly storms. You know, that we get. Although this day and age, uh, with the anti-God kind of a perspective, people prefer to speak about storms as having been produced by Mother Nature. However, in, in most cultures, less sophisticated cultures, uh, people understand the notion of God as the creator. And they're receptive to the notion that he created the world. And you go from culture to culture, they obviously uh, describe it differently. Um, but at some point, as we look at creation, we are amazed at, at what we find. Not just about the, uh, the mountains and, and the clouds, you know, sometimes... Uh, when I come home from the office and, and I, in the evening I see that uh, the skies are, are spread out with, with clouds and they're very fluffy and there's a tinge of color on them. And I look at them and I say, wow, Lord, you sure did, outdid yourself in this one. You know, because it's as if he took two or three brushes and just kind of spread the colors and... If you have any degree of artistic imagination, which I don't have a ton of, um, you stand back in awe and see God's creation. And, and to use a different picture, if you have studied the human body, which I have, I know we have a number of uh, medical-type folks here, um, it is absolutely amazing about the complexity, the sophistication of the human body. How that all you need to, in fact, to use the negative expression, all you need to have is one enzyme malfunction or not be there, and you have the entire nervous system going mishugi. By the way, that's one reason for one of the so-called Jewish diseases, Tay-Sachs, uh, which lacks a, a basic uh, enzyme. But in, in so many cultures, uh, people look at creation and they get the fact that there has to be a creator. In fact, you have to make a decision in looking at creation to, uh, to make a choice to determine that you will not believe that there's a, a creator. In fact, Paul refers to that in the following words. Men who suppress the truth, suppress the truth by their wickedness since it, it has been known about, since what is known about God is plain to them. God has made it plain to them through creation. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. 
Paul simply points out reality that you have to try and and fashion your brain in such a way that you reject what should be obvious, and that is that there's a creator. So that's what the psalmist is saying. The heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 1, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And as you know, Hebrew is so vivid. It gives us, especially biblical Hebrew, it gives us a lot of word pictures. And the first word for declare, saper, safar, comes from a basic root which means to count or to recount. Uh, in other words, it's an ongoing kind of thing that you, you look and, and you notice uh, the different aspects of creation. You say, wow, okay, that's special. Then, and then you have a different kind of a picture of creation and you stand back and say, wow, that's spectacular. Um, and you learn to declare the miracles and the mighty deeds of God. In other words, creation is a beginning point. Then there's another word that, uh, uh, that uh, is translated as proclaim, and that simply means to put on a high and conspicuous place reality. In other words, creation looks at us and says, hello, are you listening? Do you get the fact that there's a creator here? And it's something that is conveyed to us, as the psalmist says, day by day by day by day, so that we have an opportunity to get it the second, the third, the fourth time if we don't get it the first time. And also, somebody uses the picture of creation as, as a, the son as a uh, bridegroom who is rejoicing. In other words, as you look at things, you don't just see it clinically and kind of record the facts, but there's a part of you that's moved and you say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for what you have done in creation. And then, and then extrapolate from that to look at what God has done with you and God has done elsewhere. So that's God's record in, in creation. And then, of course, we have God's record in the parchment or the book, or for us who are in the 21st century, the iPhones and other technical, other electrical media but it speaks about God's revelation as being multi-purpose. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the word that's typically translated as law, uh, which comes from unfortunate translation when the Bible was first translated into Greek, nomos, and that's kind of the way it, it has been carried over, it has such a negative connotation. When you think of the word law, do you think of something that gives you the warm fuzzies? Absolutely not. Uh, but that's not what Scripture designs, has designed to communicate to us. That God's law or God's Torah 
is something that is special, something that is um, a guide for living. God's instruction. And there are a couple of areas that I wanted to focus on. It speaks about God's Torah as restoring the soul. And it also speaks about God's Torah as giving wisdom to the foolish. Now, first of all, let me talk about what it means to restore the soul. I mean, that sounds like such an abstract concept, isn't it? But think of all the dry times in your life when you don't seem to have much of a connection with God. Now, I'm not going to point a finger at anybody because God knows I've gone through more than my fair share of those dry times. You know, at times when you cognitively know who God is, you cognitively know up here in your mind, in your brain, that, that God is in the picture and somehow God loves you, but it makes a very shallow impact. And if you live long enough, and if you are a disciple of Yeshua long enough, you go through these periods... Sometimes it's because of our stupidity. We, we make choices that are sinful, that separate us from God. And then there are other times when, when God allows us to go into these dry periods, to the so-called desert periods. Why? Is he sadistic? No, he's not sadistic. Part of the picture, folks, when you think about it, the desert is a quiet place. And you get desperate and so you learn to listen because you don't have the sensory overload that you have in a city. And so when God allows us to go through dry times, what it does, it, it serves a positive purpose in that it makes us desperate for God and we learn to wait for God in expectation, sometimes desperately, but in expectation that he will come through and somehow he will open the doors and, and reveal himself and kind of revive the soul. And somehow God does that through his Torah. And we simply say, Lord, I'm not feeling particularly spiritual today. Someone mentioned that earlier today. But I want to draw closer to you. I want to grow in grace and knowledge of you. That's my goal. That's my desire. And, and I'm not feeling particularly spiritually motivated, but that's somehow in my innards. That's where I want to go. And you learn to persevere by faith without a whole lot of feeling. And at some point, God gets through. And what, what this passage tells us is that the Word of God has power to get through the titanium plates that exist on both sides of this empty space. I'm not looking at anybody here. The other focus that came to mind as I was reading this about the Torah is the fact that it gives wisdom to the simple. And the Hebrew word there, petty, is a very vivid word. It literally means the one who is clueless. 
one who is easily susceptible to being hoodwinked and uh, someone who very uh, naively is willing to follow someone who sells snake oil to them. And God knows we, we all find ourselves in those situations sometimes where we don't have a great deal of wisdom even though we think we have, but we hear things. And God knows that this day and age, there's so many voices out there, aren't there? Uh, I mean, it used to be just newspapers and books, uh, then radio, then TV, then YouTube, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we are bombarded and so the question for us is, how do we filter all the noise and all the voices that come at us? And what Scripture says here, that God's Torah, God's instruction, provides that filter for us. Or to put it another way, it keeps the malware out. Now, I don't know if you've had experience with malware, but... Um, I read recently that the uh, uh, National Security Administration um, fell victim to people who got their secrets and are putting this stuff out there. I, I, I don't understand that level of uh, evil, I guess I would have to say. Call it for what it is. And there are people who peddle stuff, who peddle stuff that is malware spiritually. And we simply have to be able to say, God, please show me how to separate the truth from the baloney. That's what the Word of God does. It gives us the necessary discernment to be able to separate. In other words, to use another metaphor, um, it's sort of like, I said like, Norton antivirus. And so part of the picture is that there's power in the Word of God. And oftentimes we read and study and meditate, reflect on the Word of God, and it's like, pfft, nothing happens. Visibly, as far as facts on the ground. But remember, folks, that when we open the Word of God and engage in it, if nothing else happens, I say nothing else happens, then you know you have Abba's smile upon you. Because it's His book. It's His book. And there is power that at some point as we reflect and meditate on the Word of God, at some point it penetrates you know, the, the mass of uh, neurons there. And somehow the Spirit of God comes and taps that so that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds as we read and study the Word of God. There's power in the Word of God. Author of Hebrews puts it this way, the Word of God is living and effectively active, sharpened double-bladed sword, it penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit 
Nothing is hidden from God's sight. So it covers all bases. It covers all bases. It helps us deal with the stuff that's out there and the stuff that's in here. Verse 13 of this psalm, keep your servant also from willful sins. In other words, we're well aware of the fact that there's stuff in us. There are pockets of yuck in us that sometimes we don't even understand. Sometimes we don't want to deal with. You know, we, we kind of put a no trespassing sign over the pockets of yuck. But at some point, part of the radical, no-holds-barred commitment to the Lord is, Lord, you've got the run of the house, including the pockets of yuck. And so the Word of God is powerful. It's also, it's also sweet. Kind of strange language for us when we think of the Word of God. More desired they are than gold, than much, much fine gold. And in other words, it's delightful. Absolutely delightful. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I read the Word of God and the Spirit of God speaks to me. And by the way, I, I always, always, always say, God, speak to me. Because I know that, not that He needs to be prodded, but that's what I do. And you're delighted because the Word of God comes and it gives you just what you need at, at, at just the right time. The instruction that you need to deal with an intractable situation. You don't know what to do with. And the Word of God speaks to you, speaks to that situation. To which we say, thank you, Lord. Because our desire is to become more and more like Yeshua. I want to close with this one verse. Sort of a mystical uh, idea uh, from Second Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we who are with veiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, it's kind of hard to put our arms around that unless you think the picture that has always come to mind for me is going to a fun house where there are different kinds of mirrors. And sometimes you come and there's one kind of mirror and you get a, a skewed perspective and then you move closer and the images come closer together. And that's what comes to mind, that when I look at a mirror, I see myself, but I want the image that's reflected for me to become more and more the image that's reflected from Yeshua. I want to be transformed. And this is something we pray for our congregational mishpacha over and over and over and over again, that the Spirit of God, as the Word of God comes in all kinds of forms, not just through the message, but all kinds of forms throughout the service, 
that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God that will bring about transformation and fashion us into people who are more and more like Yeshua. There's power in the Word of God as we learn to embrace it by faith and depend on God to do the awesome things He has in mind through this Word. We wait on that to take place more fully. Let's pray. Lord, we're astounded by the power of your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you speak to us. You know each one of us. You know us, our foolishness, our cluelessness, our, the hardness of our hearts, our unbelief, any and all of that, and more. And yet you love us and you desire the best for us. And Lord God, we simply want to respond to you, return your love, and embrace the word of life that you have for each one of us individually and for us as a congregational mishpacha. Lord God, we want to grow in grace and knowledge of you. We want to press forward. We want to accomplish the things you've laid out for us as you define it in your word. I pray for each one of us. Lord God, I pray for those aha moments. I pray, Lord, that your spirit will bring about the stirring, Lord, of our desire and our passion to delve more fully into your word and to, uh, to learn it and to apply it, to grow by it. We pray, Lord God, for that transformation to take place. We ask this all in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.